You're listening to NFL No Huddle, the podcast with Brian Weber. It's a talk show. We talk. And former Pro Bowl Steelers quarterback Cordell Slash Stewart. Hey, get your popcorn ready. NFL No Huddle airs live weekdays from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern on the NFL on TuneIn, your everything audio app. Hello and welcome to NFL No Huddle, the podcast. I'm Brian Weber alongside Cordell Stewart. On today's podcast, we're going to break down Super Bowl 52 in detail and take you around the league with NFL columnist Jason Cole. A Bleacher Report. And Brian, we're going to kick off the podcast today with NFL analyst for Fox Sports and NFL Network, Charles Davis. CD, thanks for taking the time. So as we're thinking about the profile of this game coming in, both teams were in the top five in scoring defense in the regular season. What happened to the defenses last night? I'd rather talk about the food court. Mm, Did you go to Shake Shack? You know, I did not make it to Shake Shack on this trip because that would have involved me going outside, so that just wasn't going <laughs> Remember, it was the bold north, and we were talking about the hospitality of the locals. I thought they did a marvelous job. They did a marvelous job. They really did. From the time you landed to the time you left, I thought they were just absolutely incredible. But I will tell you, if I'm on a Super Bowl committee, it's a no vote every time to a cold-weather northern Super Bowl. Just not happening for me. Unfortunately, they don't ask us, Charles, so we go no, where they we're don't, They don't ask us. I remember <laughs> I said that to a friend of mine, and he said, I absolutely agree with you. He said, but... If we were ever on the Super Bowl committee, that would mean that we have ownership stakes somewhere. <laughs> and if we have ownership stakes somewhere, we will want it in a new stadium in a cold-weather place because we'd make more money, so your vote would change. And he just pretty much killed my, killed my mood right there, and he was right. But here's the good then, news. You were in the press box. About your wallet. You yeah. were in the press box, I think, getting paid. It wasn't an internship. So what would you take away from calling the game? Well, I thought, I thought obviously, what you talked about, you know, both teams going in top five scoring offense, top five scoring defense, did not see it being the track meet that it was. But I did pick Philadelphia 35-34 going in. I thought there'd be plenty of offense, and there was. But the way that they got to it, I mean, how do you throw for over 503 touchdowns, no punts, and lose? It's just counterintuitive all the way around. I thought that the New England corners and safeties – would do more to try and disrupt the Philadelphia receivers off the line of scrimmage, kind of like they did the days of old. You know, Ty Law was a finalist for the Hall of Fame. I thought they'd take his technique, and I thought guys were getting easier releases into the secondary, which surprised me. And obviously, you know, Malcolm Butler not playing. Then you flip it over to the other side, and Nick Foles never shrank from the stage. Not that I expected him to, but he got comfortable real early, and Doug Peterson was determined to get him comfortable early with his play calling. And how about a guy getting on the gas and never getting his foot off of it? I mean, Doug Peterson, because we were in the North Country, he walked out of that stadium like Paul Bunyan. I mean, he was the man when he walked out of there because he never got off of his philosophy. And I know coaches do it all the time. We're going to be aggressive against New England. We're never going to back down. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then you get into the game and you get it tight and you go, ooh, I'm going to run the sprint draw. (laughs) Here we go. All right, let's put let's punt it and play defense. And he never did that. Charles, when you look at how the game actually first started, I thought, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought it was a win for New England's defense by not allowing that offense to score a touchdown. I mean, if you watch Philadelphia, I mean, they yep. did everything they wanted to do moving down the football field, and they stopped them from getting a touchdown. But then you saw Nick Foles with converting some big third down throws and having a chance to convert on four down. But in the second half. 
which I think where teams have a tendency, as you mentioned, to take their foot off the gas. You end up seeing New England scoring, which I think to me in this next drive was a tall tale of the outcome of this game. You end up seeing Philadelphia going down and scoring right after that. How big of a game was it for Nick Foles? Outside of understanding the MVP award that he he ended up getting in this game, how big of a game did he have for himself moving forward for his career? Oh, he had he had the game of his life, obviously. He had a game for the ages, Cordell. And, and, you know, just to echo what you're talking about, to me it was one of the weird games in terms of New England was doing the chasing most of the game, but I felt like they kept putting the pressure on Philadelphia's offense to respond. And if you're really thinking about it going into it, yeah, I'm going to put the pressure on Nick Foles to respond versus Tom Brady all the time. You may be leading – but I want to see you continue to put up points. And they did, but we all I don't know what you guys thought, but when they held them to three on that one drive late in the second half, and then Brady got the ball with a chance to take the lead and did, you're like, ooh, was that the one? Was that the break? Was that what, what they'd been doing all game long? And, of course, as you pointed out, Foles kept doing it. Now, Philadelphia put the money in Nick Foles to be that backup, and he came through in a big way. Was it $12 million? He's under contract for next year for Philadelphia. So if you want Nick Foles and you think that he's the guy now after what you saw this year, if you're Howie Roseman and the Eagles, you're having a conversation with Nick Foles that says, you know Wentz is going to be our starter going forward. We're not changing that. We appreciate everything you did. We paid you handsomely for it. It's going to take a heck of an offer for us to think that we're going to let you go. And and I think that Nick Foles has the type of personality to understand that. I don't think he's going to stomp up and down and say, let me go somewhere and be a starter. Because being in Philly and being the backup and having just won a Super Bowl, he never buys another meal in that city again. Getting released and going to Cleveland right now, is that as attractive as one might think? I don't know with his personality that it is. Or they view him as an asset, and they flip him, maybe get a second-round pick. If they're talking to Arizona, it's going to be a fascinating offseason. Recapping the Super Bowl with our good friend Charles Davis, NFL Network, Fox Sports, called the big game for an international audience. So take us through what you were thinking when we had a pair of the catch, no-catch plays yesterday on NBC. You probably know Al Michaels, Chris Collinsworth went 0-2. for They thought both those plays were going to be overturned. What were you saying in real time? Um, Bob Papa and I, on the first one with Corey Clement, we thought touchdown with our naked eye. On the replay, we thought it would be overturned. On the Zach Ertz one, I don't know why there was even a discussion. That, was, that to me, was classic clip and save put on your reel that says, this is what a catch and then it turns into a runner looks like. Why that was a delay is beyond me. I have no idea, and to me, it's part of the problem with the league right now that you're slowing down a game for that play because he caught it, clearly established as a runner, dove across the line, had nothing to do with the ball popping up at that point because he broke the plane. That one, would, to me, that one was so easy. I mean, and I'm not saying it like I'm Mr. Oracle here, but that one, to me, didn't merit a 15-second discussion. The first one, I can see why there should have been a discussion, but I thought the first one should have been overturned, and the second one never should have even been discussed. Before the game actually started, it was it was the conversation of Nick Foles against Tom Brady. And many said that he would not be able to beat Tom Brady. And, of course, uh, some 
bought into it. And I just basically said, this team is much better than Tom Brady doing it by himself because that's how good this Philadelphia team played. Did Nick Foles outplay Tom Brady? Well, if I look at what Brady put up in numbers, he didn't outplay him, but he never gave the opening that Brady could really hurdle through. I mean, if the opening is they kicked the field goal on one drive instead of a touchdown and Brady came back and put them ahead by a slim margin, that might be it, but that's about it. I mean, the rest of it was Nick Foles playing really to the best of his capabilities. And you mentioned it, Cordell, with the team that he had around him, with the weapons that he had. Look, he threw that first one up there, and it was a beautiful throw, but he threw it up with confidence. I'm going to put it up high and let Alshon Jeffrey go get it. Even on the interception, he gave Jeffrey a chance, and I thought Gilmore made a nice play and jostled him, and the ball popped up and Harmon got it intercepted. So it's an easy narrative to say that he outplayed Tom Brady. Well, he did on one play. He caught the ball on the trick play, and Tom Brady didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean that, that's kind of it, but I don't know how anyone who can throw for 500-plus yards really got outplayed. Charles, last one for me. You know sports history well. Where does what you saw yesterday rank amongst the greatest, most entertaining Super Bowls of them all? Oh, it ranks up there with with the, with the arguments and the discussion because this one you fired the starter pistol and the game was game on right from the beginning. They just kept going and going and going. Last year was incredible because of the comeback by New England. You know, we've had some great ones along the way. I, you know, we could rank them as we want to, but this one to me is in the discussion. Although in the line to get on the plane this morning, a guy turned to me and said, "Man, really liked the game, but." Almost too much offense, which is not something you hear very often from a fan. So that, that I found very interesting. And I did remind him that the game actually kind of turned at the end on a defensive play with Brandon Graham knocking the ball free from Brady. Glad you didn't follow me on Twitter because I was comparing it to the San Jose Sabercats at one stage. Little bit of arena football early on. Good drama at the end. So, so, Brandon, so Brandon Graham's play was the stop, right? Because you you're know, right, Brian, right. we did all that arena football. And remember, an arena football game, the goal each game was what they called three, what was it, three and a half stops, meaning no touchdown was a full stop. Giving up a field goal was a half stop. If you got three and a half stops in a game, you felt like you had a chance to win in arena football. We essentially got a half a stop yesterday. I mean, think about it. The Patriots never punted. So to your point, yeah, it makes sense that way. But it went up and down the field. So that fan that I talked to this morning talked to me, He'd be like, yeah, what Brian said. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brian went said. for the Hunky Cooper illusion, swing and a miss. Did you go for the Hernandez Hunky Cooper? <laughs> Charles, did you, you... Did, you, did you see him get in David Shaw's face this year? You know, Hernandez is assistant coach for the uh, for um, San Diego State. That you... was him going to David Shaw when they went at it in the, in the game during the season when they were walking off the field at halftime. That was Hernandez Hunky Cooper. You and I could talk about the 50-yard indoor war all day long. We're going to let you get some rest. I know it's been a long week for you, so Thanks so much for taking the time to join us again today on the NFL on TuneIn. Thanks a lot. No longer than anyone else who had to cover it. It was a lot of fun. You guys take care. Talk to you later. You're listening to NFL No Huddle, the podcast, and we'll be right back with more after this. Listen to your international news on TuneIn. Search under TuneIn News and catch up on what's happening in the world with CNN International. Welcome back to World News. Or go to the corners of the globe with BBC World Service. This is the BBC. And Jazeera News. This is Al Jazeera. So on the run, in the car, or anywhere life takes you, now you can listen to international news as it breaks on TuneIn. Ask Alexa. Just ask me, Alexa, to find your international news on TuneIn. Or search news today.
Welcome back to NFL No Huddle, the podcast. Here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Cordell Stewart. This is NFL No Huddle, the podcast. Now let's dig deeper into all the details of Super Bowl 52. So Cordell, as we take another crack at the big game, kudos to you once more. You were not at all hedging on Friday when you gave me your prediction. You said the Eagles would win, and you thought they would win in a pretty straightforward fashion. But let's be transparent to use your word. What were your expectations for Nick Foles as an individual heading into the game? I have to be honest with you. I I never once got caught up into the notion uh, that was because of how he played against the Cowboys and the Raiders that he would actually continue that style of football because he was just a few years off of, you know, being a quarterback that gave 27 touchdowns and two interceptions. I mean, it wasn't as if he's been playing football and and he played bad football. I mean, he did go in for Alex Smith at one point in time uh, when he was there in Kansas City, and I thought he did a a good job then. Um, To be in that same system and to have a chance to go to Philadelphia under Doug Peterson, and get his opportunity again, I thought at some point in time he would play better football, going back to the Atlanta game. I mean, they had a, a strategy in place uh, that was one that was that got the football to the backs in the flat, more lateral style of football. And then all of a sudden you saw the change in him going vertical. And I said to myself in, in the Minnesota game, and all of a sudden I got to the point where I started asking the questions. I said to myself, I said, um, if he can do this on this level, in within two weeks, being able to produce 500 yards or so in two games, I'm like, I wonder what's next. And then all of a sudden we get the opportunity to see him go out and I'm going to say, I'll say it because I went on the network that was there in New England and I remember being on with a young lady by the name of Molly and Jake Crawford, who I was on at the four letter word uh, when I was working there. And uh, I told him straight up, I said, he asked me, do you think Nick Foles can actually win this football game? I said, the beauty of this is, it's not about Nick Foles. It's about this football team. The only question I had for Nick Foles going into this game, which I like to use this this illustration all the time, how quick can he come off of cloud nine of being in a game of this magnitude? And the sooner he can get his feet planted on the ground, the quicker he can actually go out and take off and start moving around the way he needs to. And I thought what he did was, was, was about as great as it gets now to, again, answer your question. I didn't think necessarily that he had to beat Tom Brady per se, meaning who has the better game, who's, you know, who's, he did, to be honest with you. Yeah, Tom Brady gave 500, 505 yards, but Nick Foles, I had a prediction. I remember having dinner with Andrew Bach and Jeremiah and his family. And I remember I saying and making this statement, I said, he's going to throw a touchdown, he's going to run one. Now the catching portion, I was nowhere near it could even fathom seeing him catch one. But with what he did, the all-around play of how he played, you know, better percentage than Tom Brady's in the 60s. Tom Brady's was in the 50s. He goes out and go 28 to 43, three touchdowns, 378, 73 yards. Had an interception, which to me was the equivalent of a punt because that would be a 90-plus yard uh, uh, um, drive for this team. They end up scoring. Uh, but yet he comes back and he gives you one also – uh, in the air by being able to catch one. So Marcus Mariota is not the only one uh, that can have an opportunity as a quarterback, which was the first in the history of the Super Bowl to have a quarterback actually go out and score a touchdown by getting one by the in the air. So I wasn't shocked that they won because I said again, as I was saying all week long, this is a better football team from a talent standpoint. Coaching 
was going to be a questionable one. But to be able to go for it on fourth down and show the aggression going all the way back to the L.A. Rams game when, when Carson Wentz got hurt, Doug Peterson made the statement that he was not going to digress and how he was actually going to go out and play when it came down to, to, to Nick Foles. He was actually going to consistently progress as the game moved on and allowed him to play aggressive so that he can play his style of football. And I got to be honest with you. I mean, this is this is the second time that I've had the opportunity um, to see a backup quarterback that I can remember. There may have been another one somewhere, but another one that I, he actually played against the one that he beat. And that's in Tom Brady. Had a chance to play in the latter part of the season. Went out and played in the Super Bowl and won it. Nick Foles, he just put himself in a position to be valued much higher than what he was going into this game because he didn't just win the Super Bowl. He became the MVP of the Super Bowl and did it handily, I would say, with this team that really played some really, really good football. Now the question becomes, what is the future going to look like for Nick Foles? If we just Mm. think about the term insurance policy, we found out because Carson Wentz let us know, not only did he go down with the torn ACL, he's got the LCL injury. Best case scenario, he's fully healthy, ready to go, coinciding with the start of training camp. Maybe you're flirting with something closer to the start of the regular season. So conventional wisdom says you hang on the Foles because now you have real depth at the quarterback position, but Cordell, you've lived it. We know all of the mantras about football being a brutally tough business. Let's play the what-if game. What if a team desperately needing a quarterback, the New York Jets, the Arizona Cardinals, picks up the phone, calls Howie Roseman, who deserves a ton of credit for building that roster in Philadelphia, and says, I'm going to offer you a first-round pick, second-round pick, somewhere in that range that's going to blow them away for Nick Foles. Are the Eagles making that deal? Could you see Nick Foles being on another team to start next season? I have to be honest with you. I can see it happening just because of a good deed that's being done. I mean, the Jimmy Garoppolo situation to me was a great deed for him because they didn't have to. I mean, they didn't want to give him more money, which I think they put themselves in that position to wait that long. I think in this case, in this situation, Uh, being that Nick Foles is, what, 29 years of age right now. And yeah, if I was playing for the Rams through his career, if I was playing for the Rams and and, and had to deal with that, I would have probably been a little discouraged too as well. uh, Playing there. I mean, you see what ended up happening with Case Keenum and and Jared Goff when the the new regime came in under Sean McVay and and, and, and this this entire thing turned around and Case Keenum even went play with Coach Pat Shermer there in Minnesota and you saw what happened to him. Well, the reason why we had a chance to hear Nick Foles end up thinking that he was going to retire. It was, I think, because it was just that bad with the Rams. And, of course, Andy Reid helped him and saved him going to Kansas City. But if I, was in, if I was in this team's position, I would have to look at it two ways. If it gets to the point where he plays next season and his season ends in Philadelphia, he may not – there's a probably – Let's just say a 50-50, maybe a little higher, a 60-40 chance he may not play. And I'm only saying this assuming that Carson Wentz is going to come back healthy from his knee injury. But then there's a chance that we've seen what happened with Sam Bradford this year with the bone bruise because of his surgically repaired knee knee a couple times with the ACL. And so I just look at this and I say to myself, if I was this football team and I was Nick Foles, I would be gracious if I was Nick Foles but I would be really open-minded and just kind of like saying, you know what? 
This guy right now is is six years in the game. He's 29 years of age. Does he want to be a does does he want to be a backup behind Carson Wentz for another year or two? If the market says right now is his time to be able to flourish in the open market, and we also can benefit from it. So I would sit down and have a conversation with him, honestly, and give him that due respect that he deserves because of what he's done for this organization. Something that we don't know for sure if Carson Wentz could have done with how great he was playing and being also uh, a candidate for the MVP award because he still ended up throwing for more touchdowns and less interceptions than Tom Brady, and Tom Brady was the MVP. And so I would, I would, I would, I would, I would exercise that. I have to be, I would exercise it. I mean, I've, I've talked about it last week. I would exercise that opportunity. Because it seems like the more he plays, the better he gets. And the better he gets, the opportunities that we had an opportunity to see, we got a chance to see in a small sample size of football, um, was really good. But let's just be transparent. When he had his chance to play and had a run in, in, in Philly, when he did, 27 touchdowns, two interceptions. When he had a chance to play in Kansas City for Alex Smith when he was injured, he went out and balled out. And here it is, he had a chance to ball out again. And every time he stepped on the football field, other than a couple games, again out there in 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 in, in Philly when playing against the Cowboys and in, in, in the Oakland Raiders, was a time in which we see him not play so good. But the last three weeks, he's played the best football in the postseason. So much so he became the MVP. So I would exercise it. I would think twice. One, I would be selfish and think about my team first, and making sure my backup is there, and and, and want to make sure from a as you alluded to, an insurance standpoint, that case that, that Carson Wentz was going to be okay before we actually were actually diving to it. But then after that, we'd have to make a, a grown man decision and say, you know what? There's an A.J. McCarron that's floating around out there that may not be on, on, on the Cincinnati Bengals team. Let's, let's maybe grab him. We know he's a, he's a good core. We've seen what he can do as a quarterback when filling in for an Andy Dalton. I think he would be comfortable with that opportunity. But then again, does Nick Foles want to leave? He's going to get some commercials. He's going to make some money. He's going to have an opportunity. I mean, he is a wanted man. As soon as he had to get up, got up with his daughter last night on the podium and had to actually give that speech and see that relationship between he and Carson Wentz. And this is what I said before. Hot takes. You hear it, huh? Mm, Haven't heard that in a while. Coming. Oh, welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> Amazingly, we did not have one siren. Not one siren. Week in a not mall. So, you come home. Crazy. Here comes Just the first imagine responders. in Philadelphia, right? With everything that we saw with that parade, mm. guys hanging from the light poles. And, and I mean the traffic light poles. Oh, yeah. You know, the Ritz Carlton, the, the awning that's, that, that, that allows you to get out of the car and walk into the hotel so it can keep you from all the weather. The awning that people standing on it, actually doing a, a nest tea plunge backwards into the crowd climbing up the gates that were actually, you know, guarded guarded gates, like tall gates that were like 20 plus feet tall that we all saw people climbing, breaking the Macy's glasses and, you know, not doing it to, to be destructive, but just having a good time and being destructive. They had to go to jail and for right reasons because they were, they were doing a little much. That conflict of interest, I think, will seep into the community to where because of what Carson Wentz gave this... Or, not Carson Wentz, but what Nick Foles gave this community for the first time in his organization's history and something that this city has been dying for. I mean, it's been an over, overachieving city for a long time, and, and Sylvester Stallone was the superstar of that city. And AI, 
And that's, that's Rocky Balboa and AI, Allen Iverson for the Sixers, along with Dr. J. I mean, those were the household name players and a lot of great players that came out of Philadelphia. Oh, and how fitting was it that Brian Dawkins ended up getting the Hall of Fame induction and getting it, and eventually will have his bus enshrined into Canton, Ohio. I mean, it was a fitting weekend. You felt the energy. The excitement was there. Um, I just think it's going to be conflict of interest when he comes back if Carson Wentz doesn't play well. I don't think they boo him, but I just think they'll be screaming his name. And do you want that as an owner and a head coach to have that type of energy around your starting quarterback that you brought in to be the face of this franchise, which he was the reason why they were in the position that were, they were in, which was, a, which was a front-running football team throughout the entire season but they ended up holding on and did it by the hand of Nick Foles. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be one of those interesting things that we have to follow, but I just see it being a, a, a you know, a win-win situation for everyone if they just do the right thing, which I think is give them a chance to exercise his opportunities elsewhere. And everybody wants to be a starter. That's why you start playing football. And if you think about what Foles has done second half against Atlanta, the entire performance against Minnesota – who statistically had a much better defense than New England. New England's defense looked as porous as they did on opening night that Thursday when they got destroyed by Alex Smith in Kansas City. Foles has been remarkable. Let's talk more about defense and decision-making from the most accomplished head coach of his generation. Cordell, how much help did Nick Foles get from Bill Belichick's decision for whatever reason? We're still trying to explore why this happened. No Malcolm Butler last night. I tell you what, Malcolm Butler was was the oldest guy, I think, on that defense. Um, and he's had the most experience, I think, playing the sporadic football coming in and out. And I think all they had him playing was special teams yesterday. Uh, but sometimes you start drinking your own Kool-Aid. And I know there's always been a conversation that plug in and play and allow guys to just, you know, understand their job by just doing their job. Um, I think it caught up with him, to be honest with you. Uh, For whatever reason, we don't know yet. But Malcolm Butler uh, not having the opportunity to play in that football game, I think it was a big part of why they cost it cost him because he got roasted yesterday many a times. Whether it was all Sean Jeffries or whomever was on this side, he got roasted. And um, that's going to be a lot of question marks. And there was a few question marks by this football team this year in general. You know, you let Jimmy Garoppolo go. You let Jacoby Brissett go. Now you got your your defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator leaving. You got Alex Guerrero off the field. And and now here it is, Malcolm. I'm just saying, Malcolm Butler didn't play. The, you, know, it, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I understand linebacking positions. But when you're going man coverage, you got the RPO system in your face. You know, you, you have a guy that's thinking just a little bit about maybe you know, what could happen or what if. This is a defender, you know, and this was Roe. You know, um, I, I look at this, I look at that to say that when you look at this for me, I think this will be the topic of conversation when having a chance to see that they didn't have Malcolm Butler in this game. And I got to be honest with you. You know, egos sometimes get in the way and, and it can cost you. It can cost you. And for me, I think it cost this football team, I mean, big time. I mean, great game, game was about as good as it gets. It couldn't have been a much better football game. But I think Eric Rowe, who actually went in third year play out of Utah, when you think of Malcolm Butler, 
when it comes to one of the veterans that's on this defense that's been in those big moments in those big games. Outside of James Harrison, who was obviously brought in after the Steelers let him go at the 11th hour, he had the most overall experience on that defense, I would say, uh, than the young man in Eric Rowe. So how much did it cost him? We'll never know, but I have to, I have to assume that the experience that he's had and the big play capabilities that we've seen him be a part of and going back to that game they played against Seattle in the Super Bowl, reading that play the way he did, that experience for Eric Rowe I don't think was nowhere near in his DNA because to me he hadn't got enough play and hadn't been in those big moments enough uh, to make it. But you know what? Bill Belichick's a guru. He's a genius. You know what? And, and, and Nick Foles went out there and outplayed his quarterback and and I think a big part of it, a good changeup would have been a Malcolm Butler. Maybe not starting him, right. but a changeup? Give me a changeup. Don't just but, sit the man the whole game. Come on, he's special clowning. teams, right. That is baffling, and I know the Patriots want to guard all secrets. At some point, Butler's got to tell that story because, Cordell, remember, he's heading into free agency now. What's the first question any team that meets with him is going to be posed? What happened at the Super Bowl? How come you weren't on the field playing defense? Well, it's going to be his word against Bill Belichick's mm-hmm. word. But the outcome, I think, favors Malcolm Butler because he was one of the big playmakers in that game. And so, you know what? You may have had a hiccup. You may have done something that, was, that wasn't you know, seen in the newspaper, which we didn't know anything about until we saw him on the sideline and not in the game. For whatever reason, whatever it may be, I think most teams will look at how he was coached and how he evolved over the years in being on this football team, that will matter most for, I think, the other teams than whatever reason Bill Belichick may have not allowed him to play. Unless it's something that's really, really bad and we just hadn't gotten that information quite yet. So when I look at it, I'll say this. I think he'll still be fine. Question is, where does he go? And unfortunately for him, he didn't get a chance to play to prove his point. Maybe, maybe. Could have been, he may have been looking ahead. You never know. But hey, man, I've seen stranger things before, and it doesn't shock me there in New England when it comes to cutthroat in the sense of how they handle players and moving them around and, you know, all that great stuff. So it's it's going to be one of those cases for me where I just think it's going to be a matter of time to seeing what it is. and and uh, But I think that's a big part of why they lost because they didn't have Malcolm Butler in the game. If they had him in the game, I thought it would be a different game. Not necessarily the outcome, but a different game. He's Cordell Stewart. I'm Brian Weber. Monday edition of NFL No Huddle. It's the NFL on TuneIn. In 10 minutes, we wrap it up with a flurry of information, the hurry-up offense. So it feels like Philadelphia got help from the ego-driven decision, in my analysis, by Bill Belichick not to play. Malcolm Butler beyond a cameo on special teams. Did they get help from the officials? Because you're hearing a lot of that from Patriot fans on social media. Let's go through the grand debate. Catch, no catch. Now, I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on the Earth's play because I think they clearly got it right. If we just go component by component, Earth's becomes a runner. You break the plane, touchdown, right? So what's the grand debate there? Well, you know, when listening to the guys that was covering the game, Al Michaels and, and Chris Collinsworth, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, they were predetermining what it was or maybe just in the want it to be an incomplete pass world. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, no. I'm like, it's not an incomplete, especially Ertz. I mean, Ertz had total control. And even watching some of these guys today talk about it, they still didn't talk about 
the, the contact between the defender and the player. Now, if the defender doesn't touch him and he dives into the end zone, that could have been and the ball moved the way it did. That could have been a play that was similar to a Des Bryant's play because that's what happened. Des Bryant catches the football in Green Bay when playing in the playoffs a couple few years ago. He's not touched. He dives. Ball moves. He recovers it. Incomplete pass. Ertz, he catches a football. He dives. If no one, if that at this time, this is just a scenario. He dives, the ball moves, but the ball goes up in the air, and then he ends up catching again. So it's almost like it's a different scenario now because the ground causes a fumble, the ball goes up in the air, he recovers it. I think it's a touchdown even then. But a player hit him. What happens to a football player, whether it's a back out of the backfield, receiver or running back? That ends up catching a football, makes a move. He dives for the end zone. He gets hit in midair. Ball crosses the plane. Touchdown. That's that. That's how I. That's how I saw it. So to me, that wasn't even a question mark. But I thought because every play has to be reviewed. I thought they did the right thing and made the right call. Now during the regular season, you don't know which direction it would have gone in. I think that's why that crew, in my opinion, who I thought was a really good crew. When watching them, I love watching those guys in that crew, the refereeing crew. I thought they'd been pretty accurate and consistent in how they actually covered a lot of games with those questionable calls. So I thought it was good with Ertz. Now, Clemens? Clemens, let's talk about his. So, of course, Nick Foles throws a dime of a pass. Matter of fact, I even got a hunk horn in the background on that one because he agreed with me. It was a dime of a pass being thrown. And the coverage is where there were two to three guys around. So I think when you really start looking at it, you say to yourself, okay, is it a catch? I say, yes, it was a catch. Now, what I did see Clements end up doing is Corey started moving the ball around from his right, from the middle of his body, which he had control, to his left arm. Now, as the ball is moving, is the ball out of control, meaning on his forearm, outside of his hand, almost falling down to his leg. Now, it was pent to his chest. So after he caught it, it was pent to his chest. It slid across his chest to his left arm. As he got ready to go out of bounds, out of bounds if the ball would have shifted then, that's when I thought it would have been considered as an incomplete pass, but he had it pinned to his chest. He jumped high enough to not allow his arm nor his arm to move to where the ball could have budged a little bit, and maybe that could have been an incomplete pass. But that was, that was a more questionable one. But my reasoning was he caught the football with two hands. On his chest, it was pinned. It slid across to his left arm. He got total control, meaning that it wasn't out of control, but he just slid it to his hand to where once he got out of bounds, he didn't hit the ground with his arm where it could have slid even more. He kept control of it. Touchdown. That, that's what I saw because it was pent across his chest. If the ball would have come off of his chest and fumbled on the arm and left it just a little bit, I thought that's what it would have been considered as an incomplete pass. How about yourself? And I think the officials got it right on both counts. And hopefully, as we wrap it up, this lays the foundation not only for the return of common sense in the offseason, 
when we get the latest meeting of the competition committee, change the definition of what a catch is. Go old school. This is not the Magna Carter. We don't need 17 moving parts. Forget about surviving the ground. We all know what a catch is. Change that perception of where things stand now to use your brains and just convey what we know to be true, what a catch is, come up with simple, plain language, change the definition, let's move forward. You're listening to NFL No Huddle, the podcast. We'll be right back after this. TuneIn has what you need and when you want it when on the run and on the go. Covering all musical needs. Today's hits. Latin hits. Country roads. Hip hop beats. Supporting artists and the music they make exclusively on TuneIn. This is NFL No Huddle, the podcast. Here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Cordell Stewart. Welcome back to NFL No Huddle, the podcast. Now let's bring you some of the best moments from our coverage of the NFL Honors Show in Minneapolis. Part of the big weekend on Saturday night included the news from Canton, Ohio. And let me see if I can do this. That knock on the door that the fellas were waiting for indicated good news. Indeed, they were going to the Hall of Fame, and Randy Moss got even the more special distinction, first ballot Hall of Fame induction. We had a great conversation with Randy on Saturday night. Randy Moss, first ballot. Didn't have too much time to get frustrated or think about it. You just got right in when it was your time. What's going on right now inside, man? I don't, I don't, I don't really know, man. I'm just really trying to just take this moment in. I think just being up on stage at the NFL Honors, being able to see the guys that paved the way for me to be able to play this game. You know, you're sitting up there looking at Jim Brown, you're looking at Joe Green. I'm sitting there like, wow, man. I, when I seen Joe Green, the first thing it took me back to was the commercial. Thanks, Mean Joe. You know what I'm saying? So just, just being able to look and be on stage with, with guys that paved the way. You know, I got a love, got some love, got a hug from Kurt Warner. You know, Curtis Martin, um, Aeneas Williams. Man, I seen a guy that I competed with my rookie year, Daryl Green. You know what I'm saying? So just being able to see those guys, man, that paved the way for me. That's really what 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 I'm feeling right now, being able to see the legends. You know, now that me being able to put this gold jacket on, man, I'm in that category, man. And I remember Mr. Baker talking about, man, no one in the Hall of Fame can be traded. Nobody can be cut. I'm in this thing forever, man. And, you know, one of the things that I hold, hold deep and dearly to my heart, man, is hard work pays off. You know, there's a lot of people out there who want to take shortcuts. When I tell you Gatorade and water, that's me. Gatorade and water. Hard work, man. Nothing else. How about getting the news here in Minnesota, Staten, which you scored all of those touchdowns and produced so many memories? You know, it was, it was definitely great. And um, I think that was where my nervousness did set in that because if there's anywhere that I want to be inducted, why not Minnesota? You know, we started the season out here, ESPN. I went up in the ring of honor. And then we're going to finish here. So you're talking about a surreal story. That's a great story. So, it, it, you know, I, I, I played the game, and I stood by them. I, I played with three Fs. Faith is first, family second, football third. I still hold by that, man. And uh, 
that was my focus. That's what I was passionate about. And um, I tried not to get off of that road. And, yeah, I ruffled a lot of feathers on the way, you know, because I, I don't think that people understand how focused you have to be to be able to maintain a certain type of level of play. So that's the one thing I didn't do. I, I didn't really do a lot of things that people expected me to do. All I ever wanted to do was play the game of football. Randy, you mentioned rust, ruffling feathers. Um, we all come from somewhere. I know you're from West Virginia. I saw your story. And sometimes those hard times, in some cases, cause you to have to dig from within and use that to help you get to where you are right now. So from West Virginia and that story up until this point, do you think that kind of helped you? drive and stay the course to allow you to even appreciate this moment as much as you do right now well you know when you have a you know a hard sort of upbringing and um you know my my upbringing is no different than the next man like you said we just come from different walks of life but everybody goes through the struggle so i think for me to be able to keep my focus maintain my focus but at the same time understand where my roots are and where they lie you know, I'm from West Virginia. Um, I really don't think there are any Hall of Famers from that state. You know what I'm saying? So for me to be the first Hall of Famer coming out of the state of West Virginia, man, I need everybody in the state of West Virginia, <laughs> Rand, West Virginia, stand up, baby. We in here, the Hall of Fame, go jacket. I see y'all in Canton. Randy Moss, kind enough to join us on Saturday night on the NFL on TuneIn. Now let's hear from another first ballot Hall of Famer, Bears linebacker Brian Erlacher. Brian Erlach, I had an opportunity to play with you going all the way back to 2003. And to see you play the way you did, it was amazing then, and it's amazing now to see you in the hall. Give us your feelings. It's a long journey, you know, to go from high school to college to the NFL. And if you had told me when I started playing NFL I was going to come this far, I told you you were crazy. You know, so many things have to go right. You got to stay healthy. You got to make pretty good decisions off the field to, to stay on the field. But... Just a long process, and um, this is the pinnacle. You know, it can't get any higher than this uh, as a football player. What does it mean for you to join icons from Chicago, like Butkus yeah. and Singletary, played your position and now heading to Canton, Ohio? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. You know, those those guys are some of the best of all time to do it. Um, and to finally, now I can say I've cemented myself in that history, you know, to get over this hump now for me and be where they are. You know they're cemented uh, eternally, obviously in Canton as well. So it's it's nice to finally say I'm I'm in their category now because for so many years everyone's like, oh, how do you compare yourself? I go, I don't compare to them. They're in the Hall of Fame. You know, now I can say I compare to them because I am where they're at. A lot of the guys that came up on stage with you were guys that you've watched, you've heard of, yeah. uh, you played against. To now all of a sudden you're a part of that fraternity. When you say that now that you have a gold jacket, you know, there's nothing left. This is it. This, this is the. Uh Holy Grail, the Holy Grail of football right here. You know, there were some unbelievable players that came up on that stage at the honors. You know, and I've, like you said, I watched, I played against a bunch of these guys growing up. Never would I imagine being in the same category as them. But I just was up, I stayed healthy long enough. I made enough plays, I guess, and tricked enough people to, to, to vote for me. But um, it's amazing. The, the process was. Um, was difficult at times because you just don't know you know you don't know if you want to bring your whole family or leave them at home because if you don't get in you're gonna be disappointed but that's just part of the process I guess and uh it worked out for me this time what does it mean to you to go in with Ray Lewis because when we think about the best of your position at the same time it's you and him I feel like we battled out there for a lot of a lot of years who's better some years he may get me one year I may get him but I always enjoy watching Ray play. You know, I, I, I enjoy good football. 
played against Randy, watched Brian Dawkins play, played against him as well. But, but Ray, Ray's one of the best of all time. That's why he's in the Hall of Fame, the first ballot Hall of Famer. So to go in with him is really, really cool. You know, two receivers, two linebackers, or three, I'm sorry. Robert Brazier's linebacker as well, so I don't mean to leave him out either. But just a really, I, I mean, you look at that finalist list, who are you going to pick from? Ray, Ray and Randy, in my opinion, were the two that were going in no matter what. And then the other two or three positions, I mean, Good luck. You know, there's some really good players that got left off of this year's year's class, in my opinion. But there's, I mean, you can't fault the guys that are in there. They're unbelievable class. When you think of the players that you play with in Chicago, uh, the Olin Crutes of the world and many other, uh, will you have an opportunity to go back to Chicago where some of those guys are and, and have a chance to kind of toast it up with them just a little bit to tell them how much you really appreciate them? You know, it's, this whole process is, I've talked to a bunch of guys I play with throughout this because it's very public when they, when they announce stuff. Uh, the... The, the support I get from those guys has been phenomenal. You know, and I'm friends with all of them still. We don't talk as much as we used to. We don't see each other every day, but the outpouring of support I've gotten from them is phenomenal. And you know, in a couple years or next year, there's going to be some guys I play with in my shoes waiting to get in as well. you got Olin coming up, Lance is coming up, Charles is coming up. There's so many good players I play with that are going to be in my position really soon, and I hope they turn to me to, to ask me questions on how it is as well. But, you know, we had so much fun. You were there for the year. I mean, we, it was, we didn't always win, but we had a hell of a good time losing. When we, when we did lose, it was still fun because we punished people and we played the game the way the game should have been played. Tomorrow we'll bring you an emotional conversation with Ray Lewis, but first Cordell went one-on-one with my guy Aaron Rodgers Saturday on the red carpet at the NFL Honors Show. I'm here with the great Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. This had to be a tough season for you. Uh, you guys were going in the right direction, and a freakish accident ended up happening. Uh, where are you right now as far as your body is concerned? Well, I'm feeling great right now. I'm back into everything I like to do in the offseason, uh, working out 100%. Playing golf, traveling, no issues. So, you know, but a season like this sometimes is the type of uh, least the type of changes that you need. And we've made a lot of changes uh, so far early in the offseason, and uh, we'll see how they pan out. Yeah, changes have been made, uh, whether it's the GM to maybe a few other players, and you're also going to add some players. If, As a quarterback of this team and obviously the leader of it, making all the decisions, if you had your choice, your druthers, as far as what you need, Give me a few things, because we know it's all offense, of course. It's all you. The pressure's on you, obviously, to get it done every year. So what would you say you need to make it work the way you need to efficiently? Well, I think every team that's not playing right now is a couple players away. So we got to add the right guys to the mix. We haven't been super active in free agency over the years. Um, we'll see if that changes with the new GM or not. Uh, but we need to draft well. Uh, we haven't been drafted 14th in years. We've been in the playoffs the last eight years, so we got to draft well. Uh, we made a change on the defensive staff. You know, we got to we got to improve on that side of the ball. And we got to be more consistent on the offensive side of the ball. When you see the the the, the longevity of someone like Tom Brady, he's 40 years old. And of course, your time's gonna come way down the road. We're not gonna even talk about that, way down the road. You got me by six years. <laughs> when you look at what he's been able to accomplish and how the game is allowing that person, as far as that age is concerned, to be around that long, how good does it feel to allow, to know that you're gonna have that opportunity to probably be around that long or maybe even longer? Well, it's about passion for the game. If you still love it and you can still play and you're not too banged up, then why not? Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's about passion. As long as I can still give 100% to it, I still love it. I still love to be out there with the guys. I'm going to keep playing. And that could be late 30s or it could be mid 40s. You never know. <laughs>
<laughs> Give me your take on the honors and how honored are you to, to, to be here amongst all the greats. I mean, Hall of Famers, current players, even J.J. Watt, uh, who's one of the great ones. Uh, but also you got the Walter Payton Award that's going to be given too. When you think of how players in the National Football League are now being honored the right way, not just based on numbers and stats, but the things they also do off the field. Is the, direct, is the league going in the right direction when it comes to bringing relevance to the person and not just the athlete? Well, I think they can do a lot more. Unfortunately, a lot of the stories about guys in our league, and you know, are negatively slanted. And guys do some incredible things. A guy like J.J. Watt, what he did this year for Houston in the recovery, um, I would expect him to win the Walter Payton Award. Although the other two guys, Ben Watson and Greg Olson, who he's up against, have both done incredible things as well off the field. But we need, as long as a league, we need to continue to promote uh, the things that our players are doing because there's a lot of great and a lot of change that they're making for the positive in their communities, in their regions. And unfortunately, in this news cycle, it's the negativity that sells more often than the positive things that our players are doing. But tonight is a night we can celebrate the current players, we can be excited about some of the future, and then also honor uh, the past guys who've been. I just took a picture of Franco Harris. I mean, I'm a, I'm a historian. I love the, you know, the history of the NFL. You know, he was a part of one of the greatest plays in NFL history. So that's fun for me. Aaron Rodgers, our guest Saturday night on the NFL on Tuning Cordell, outstanding job. Although I think you overlooked one thing in your introduction. You could have said, probably should have said, I'm here with the best quarterback in all of football, Aaron Rodgers. I gave him the great Aaron Rodgers. The great. I mean, what do you want me to what else you want me to say? <laughs> hey, he was really gracious and generous with his time. Yes, he was. He, I mean, he was uh thoughtful in everything he said. Um, I thought he you know, it wasn't like he was just answering questions. He, it was thoughtful questions, thoughtful, thoughtful answers. And, and sometimes when you're being pulled on from so many different angles, you have a tendency sometimes just to want to go get through it. Well, I, he stood there graciously and, and truly answered the questions to where it sounded as, as it did a second ago, which was really, really good. So and I, was, I was appreciative of that one. Had to go catch him a little bit because I was caught up in doing one with another player and Former player, can't remember who he was, but I knew when I saw Aaron Rodgers. Boom. You like, shuffled down that red carpet, man. You, grab him. You could still move, picking him up, putting him down. Yeah, I was, I was you know, I'm quick on my feet, you know. Uh, but when I, when I ran that far, I had to kind of walk real slow back because those shoes were wearing my feet out. <laughs> well, you also talked to 27 people, and I'm yes, going to tell the audience what they should know about a conversation that you had with Steve Young, who said, I heard you on the radio in San Francisco. You're really good. Yeah, he gave me a love shot on that one. Didn't have to, and it was completely unsolicited. He volunteered yeah. that compliment. It came out of, and, I, and trust me, I appreciate it, because Steve and I, he and I was with Lee, and I had a chance to have a few encounters with uh, Steve just in passing and sometimes at different events. And um, when Steve gives you a compliment, which, you know, he's open to do that a lot, and he's, very, he's, he's pretty honest, um, I appreciated that big time, because uh, it lets you know that you never know who's listening. And for him to uh, shout that out, let me know that um, while you think you're just running your mouth by yourself and no, to yourself, no. you have someone else out there listening. Global audience, and it was nice for you to book Steve Young. He's going to join us when, tomorrow or Wednesday on the show? Tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow. You have a time or it could happen? No time. He'll just be on the show. <laughs> time over the you course to, of three hours. produce that behind the scenes. Thank you. Produce it up. And that gets to my central thought. If you miss a little of this show, you miss a lot. So you got to hang with us for all three hours, right? Yeah. 
Can't go anywhere. You're listening to NFL No Huddle, the podcast, and we'll be right back with more after this. Despacito? Fonzie! Yeah, we were on that before the Beebs even heard of it. Please. Mi gente? Way before Queen Bay. We were already on it. Discover the next Despacito or Mi Gente track on any of our Univision radio stations. From regional Mexican music and top-rated shows. To Latin trap. And even Jackie Guerrido on the radio. Que los zurdos pueden ser más inteligentes. Oye, pero no hemos dicho, Jackie, ¿con qué mano tú escribes? Con la derecha. Search for Univision here on TuneIn and enjoy a wide variety of flavors and stations. Welcome back to NFL No Huddle, the podcast. Here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Cordell Stewart. As we close out NFL No Huddle, the podcast, let's take you across the league with NFL columnist Jason Cole of Bleacher Report. Jason, thanks for taking the time. You're an actual football journalist as opposed to someone like me who's just loud and opined. So what can you tell us about the reason why Malcolm Butler was benched by the Patriots last night? I can't tell you anything about why other than what Belichick has said so far. Um, and I find it curious, but knowing Belichick, he came to this not out of spite, but out of some logical conclusion based on actions taken by Malcolm Butler um, that he thought would affect how he played. I think it's an awfully drastic decision. But I, I remember talking with Belichick one time, and we were discussing Richard Seymour and why he traded Richard Seymour you know, famously on the eve of the season. And he just felt like he knew he, knew he wasn't going to re-sign Richard. Richard knew, knew he wasn't going to re-sign with the Patriots. So he came to the conclusion that Richard was going to have give decreasing effort as the season went on and would not be as you know fix, fixated on helping the team win. All that said, he's not playing Malcolm Butler ninety eight percent of the time this season and right up until the last game. So I don't know why you choose at this moment in time to get away from that. So something drastic must have happened to make uh, to to basically spook Belichick into why he didn't play, you know, one of his top corners. Jason, outside of the victory for the team, um, did Nick Foles outplay Tom Brady? No, I thought <laughs> I thought that it was a draw at best. Um, other than the pass catching ability, I mean, uh, it was clear that Foles, uh, Foles is a better receiver than than Brady. I don't think that that much matters in the long in the larger scale, but. Uh, look, I, I thought Brady played a great game. I, I don't think that Brady made any mistakes. And if you say that you're going to score, you know, 33 points, most of the time for the Patriots, you feel pretty good that you're going to win. You know, the problem was they gave up 41. And that defense that all of us saw during the season that gave up a lot of yards, you know, finally gave up yards and points like it did in the first couple of games, but they had seemingly fixed that because they've done such a good job with their secondary in terms of spacing so that once you got into the red zone, they were capable of stopping people. But once you take Butler out of that equation, that goes away in, in a very large respect. So um, I think that you know the decision on Butler was a huge one for them. And it wasn't – this wasn't – while it was decided by the quarterbacks and they had a huge amount to, to, to say about the outcome of the game, I thought their play was basically to a draw. Chatting with a good friend, Jason Cole of Bleach Report. So, Jason, we had two more of those catch-no-catch scenarios yesterday. When we get to the meeting of the competition committee in the offseason, is the league finally going to try to simplify 
this ongoing debate, at least from their perspective, about what a catch is? Well, I'm going to try. I mean, Roger said that, you know, Roger Goodell said that twice last week. Uh, individual radio conference, he said it uh, during the State of the League address on Wednesday. So, you know, it's clear that they want to. The problem that they have, and I think Cordell can probably explain this a little bit better, is can you live with the downside of allowing more situations like that to be catches? And by downside, I mean fumbles. So if you allow the Earth's play to be a catch, which they did yesterday, all right, and he goes to the ground, hits the ground, the ball comes loose. And, and you know, he's, it's sort of, you know, this is ended because he crossed the goal line. But in the open field, if he does that and goes to the ground, that's a, that should be a live ball. And if he can't get, re, get control of it again, that's potentially a fumble. So you're adding, I don't know, probably anywhere from six to ten fumbles per year per team. You know, that's a lot more fumbles. And coaches hate that because fumbles scare coaches uh, and, and make them worry that they're not going to, you know, that you know, some chance thing is going to affect the, the outcome of their jobs and their seasons and all those kinds of things, right? So I think there's a, there's a great way to simplify it if you're willing to live with more fumbles, and that's more of a coach issue. If you're not, then it's always going to be, compl- going to be complex. So the one thing that fans don't seem to understand um, is that when you make that rule change to, hey, you know, it looks like a catch, it should be a catch, that's true. But then you add in the the ones that look like a catch and become fumbles as well. Over the past few years, and, and well, going back to the Super Bowl last year, to the Steelers and also the Jacksonville Jaguars, those teams had a tendency in some capacity of the game, at some moment in the game, to take the needle off the record. One thing this team needed to do in Philadelphia was, was to truly go out uh, and play to the very last minute. Give me your approach or your thought process on Doug Peterson, how he maintained being aggressive thinking about that fourth and one play where he ended up throwing a touchdown to their quarterback was extremely aggressive and almost seemed like they were a player or two ahead of Bill Belichick at points in the game. Well, I think there's – look, Doug Peterson innately has to like to gamble. All right, Now, I don't know if that means, you know, like actual gambling or not, but <laughs> he, he, he likes to take chances. Okay? I'm not trying to, you know, say that he's hanging out in Atlantic City every night. But I uh, – he 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 doesn't he doesn't shy away from it, right? And I think that that innate sense of it is also fed by look who he was the backup quarterback to. I mean, Dan Marino and Brett Favre. And I don't know that you can find any two quarterbacks who are bigger gamblers or gunslingers in the history of this league um, than those two guys, right? Who believed. And the, their ability to throw a ball or you know make, make a play, and I believe that whatever innate understanding um, that he had uh, of uh, of gambling was only enhanced by playing behind those guys, right? So here you have a guy who's sitting there going, "We're not backing down, you know, we're we're coming out and we're coming to get you." And then you you made a great point about this, Cordell, which is. He was prepared for that moment. Yes, he did seem like he was two, two steps ahead because when they went to those decisions, it was like there was no timeout. There was no like, hey, let's huddle and think about what we're going to do. You know, 
No, it was like, hey, we didn't get it on third down, go. Just go. We got the play. We're set. It's fourth down. And I think that that, and I'd love to hear your take on it, Cordell. I think that when you're like that, when a coach is like that, I think that filters down the players, and they're like, all right, good. We're, we're, we're not even thinking, but we're going because we believe in ourselves. There's no hesitation because when you have that timeout, that's when you start to think about all the bad things that can happen if you don't do this. Mm-hmm. If you just go and you say, hey, we're ready for the next play, let's move on. You don't have time to think about the bad things that can happen. Well, I'll say this. If you go back to that Rams game when Nick Foles actually came in for Carson Wentz, one of the conversations that Doug Peterson had was he didn't want to change the approach in the game because naturally, what do you do when the backup comes in? You start running a football, you start dinking and gunking, and now you're playing into the hand of the defense because – Traditionally, that's what you do when you bring the backup in. But I thought he kept. I thought he kept, as I mentioned, the, the needle on the record and just kept that thing of playing. And the only two games where I think most probably fell off when it came to Nick Foles was obviously the the Oakland game and the, and the Dallas game. But he ended up picking those pieces back up again and, and, and actually started playing well against Atlanta. And then you saw what he did against Minnesota. And I think it carried over. So to answer your question. Um, I just thought he was just playing brave football in the sense of how he coached it throughout the entire season. So Doug Peterson, I think he took his his world of playing the game. He implemented it to coaching the game, also being behind Andy Reid as a coach. And it fed into the backup quarterback like he once was, understanding that, hey, I know when I played, I probably handed off all the time. That's why we lost. I'll say this about Doug, though. When he went in games, I love Doug. But he wasn't a guy who was slinging it. <laughs> there was an awful lot of, hey, who can I hand it to? Right. <laughs> there was some of that, and rightfully so. Look, he just, he's a good athlete. He just wasn't as blessed as, you know, as the guys that he backed up. And so you can't, like, you can't expect a backup quarterback to go in and carry out the Brett Favre game plan or the Dan Marino game plan. That's just not going to happen. Jason, let's wrap it up with Nick Foles. So you go from being Super Bowl MVP to potentially number two on the depth chart again in Philadelphia, and I think that's literally going to be the case. But what about the view that mm-hmm. the Eagles could view him as an asset? If they get an incoming call offering, maybe a second-round pick, do you think they would look to deal Foles in the offseason? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'd think about it. Now, I think that Nick Foles has earned the courtesy from them of saying, hey, hey look, Nick, we want you here because you're valuable as a backup. But we also understand that, you know, you understand, we understand that we may get a big offer for you. You know, some people may fall in love with, with what you are again, just like the Rams did that one time before that sort of went backwards. And say, hey, look, let's, you know, we'll, we'll move you or, you know, whatever it is. But I think that he, he's earned that courtesy to, for them to say, hey, look, do you want to do this? Because we know you have gone from living in Philadelphia to going to St. Louis to thinking you were going to move to Los Angeles, to having the rug pulled out from under you, to going to Kansas City, to be with Andy Reid, to coming back to Philadelphia, and that's you know, like that's hard on anybody's you know life, you know life and sanity, okay? And especially if you're married, you get you got a little one, and all those kinds of things. What is it you want to do? Do you want us to trade you to get you to another place and a new place that you want to go to, or do you want to stick this out and become a free agent? You know, there's going to be some. I think that there, Harry Roseman would owe him that kind of courtesy of a discussion. Ultimately, though, look, if somebody comes in and offers you a second and a third round pick or a second and a fourth, you know, if I'm Harry Roseman, it's like, okay, yeah, 
I'll probably I'll probably do that, even though you could make a really good argument that hey, I needed this this guy one time to win a Super Bowl. You know, I might need him again, especially given the way that Carson Wentz plays. So I think there's going to be some balance in what goes on there because Carson Wentz. Hey, look, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get him to stop playing the physically aggressive way he does. So I think injuries are likely to be a pretty big part of his career. Jason, as always, we appreciate the information. Thanks for joining us once more on the NFL on TuneIn. No problem, guys. Be good. Thank you for listening to NFL No Huddle, the podcast on iTunes with Brian Weber and Cordell Stewart. Listen live weekdays from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern by downloading the TuneIn app and searching NFL No Huddle. The National Football League is on. TuneIn, your everything audio app.